The passage for today is John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also in, was also invited to the disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servant, said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to them, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the, fir the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome everybody this morning. I'm excited after church today to be picnicking with many of you. Uh, as as close to one church as I think it will feel like, maybe for some time, um, hopefully um, just for a while, but we will see. Um, so this, this morning we are continuing through our series in the Gospel of John. I want to just take a quick moment to emphasize and ask you all to do something maybe we haven't done which is to read through this book with me as we're in this series. Take a chapter a week, two chapters a week, three, if you can. Sit down for a half hour a week, read through some of John. It's a story. It's conversational. It's actually the thing most like a novel that I have read in the Bible. Um, maybe short of Acts, it's the most... Um, it holds your hand as it walks through these stories. You feel as though you could be reading these today. And so I'd like to emphasize that because I think that these teachings will be all the more powerful if you've wrestled ahead of time with the text, trying to figure out what does this text mean? What am I getting out of it? Ask yourself some questions from it and come on Sunday with a sense of the lay of the land. I think powerful. And I think it will, will up our biblical literacy game a little bit as followers of Jesus. So I'm going I'm to continue to emphasize that. Today we're on the second chapter. Last week we talked about how Jesus opens the heavens for us. He is the stairway, the bridge. John is full of I am statements. And in this, in this section we will find that Jesus is giving his first sign. That's what the text tells us. At the end of this, we have the first sign. But at the beginning, we have simply a big problem. Now, we might think that this is not as big of a problem. We have just dealt with forest fires engulfing people's homes. We have dealt, some of us, with friends and family and loved ones who have evacuated so this doesn't seem like a very big problem, perhaps. But I think this text is powerful in that it tells us that Jesus is with us in the small and the big. And this text, like all of the texts we will look at, is primarily a conversation with Jesus about a problem. So this text really is about prayer. Anytime characters are talking to Jesus in the Bible and having a conversation, they are talking to the Almighty God. And isn't that what prayer is? Some of the conversations are arguments. Some of them are complaints. Some of them are accusations. Now, there are better and worse examples. It is sort of an examination of what prayer ought to be to look at these conversations. But I think I'd like, to, I'd like us today to take away this and ask the question, what is my rhythm of prayer, first of all? Am I convicted in my prayer life that the rhythm is well? That I am coming to God daily, at least, 
perhaps twice a day? Or am I only coming to him once a week? Or am I only coming to him in these sort of Hail Mary prayers when things aren't going well? Just to, just to lay the foundation. There's a rhythm of prayer. But once we have the rhythm of prayer, all of us know that once we begin to set aside time for prayer, which is hard enough in and of itself, because as we know, prayer is one of those things that seems like the, it's the most spiritual of the things we can do in the kingdom in one way, right? Because we're not doing anything out there. We're not taking action out there with our own bare hands. We're not intervening with a friend and telling them what we think they should do. No, we're going to God in prayer and we're listening and we're asking. And to the rest of the world, it might seem like we're literally doing nothing. And I think we buy far too much into that. And so for those of us who have gone and are attempting this rhythm and this discipline of prayer as a disciple of Jesus, we then come into that space and we no sooner are there some of you have been to Ellen's prayer night on Friday night. No sooner are you there for this full hour than you realize, how do I pray? How do I begin? Who am I praying to? Who is this Jesus that I pray to? And how does he operate? And what can I expect from him? So today we'll look at this common story. You've heard this story before. This is a Sunday school, school story of Jesus, one that you learned growing up, one that you've seen and heard about. But usually when this text is taught, it's taught, and not unrightly, uh, about the new covenant, about how Jesus takes the old laws away and brings the new covenant of his blood, right? That's one way it's taught. It's also taught in sort of youth group as rock and roll Jesus, right? Jesus walks into the party, right? He's got long hair and he's ready to go and let's have some fun. And Jesus isn't just this boring guy. He likes to have a good time. But rarely is this taught, in my experience, as a passage on prayer. But I think it has a lot to say about it. And as I was looking through commentaries, I thought, why hasn't this come up more often? All of the language that these authors are using looking at this story is about prayer. The problem. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus came to him and said they have no wine. So here we're in a historical Jewish wedding in Israel. And I, you, need to, you need to tee this up a little bit. You need to understand the historical scenario. Our weddings are quite different in many respects. Right here is the joining of a man and a woman. That's the same. But so much of it is different. First of all, the groom puts on the whole show. The bride makes a procession to the groom's house, and the whole wedding affair happens, not just in a few hours or in an evening or afternoon, but sometimes days, even a week, celebration in the groom's house. So the groom's family has to get ready for this. This is a big social undertaking. And in that culture where everybody is working so hard and life is much, much harder than our lives are today, in the sense of the grueling labor, lack of social programs, right? There, there is a much needed break in a wedding. When they get to a wedding, it, everybody's just ready to lay back and enjoy what life is really about. A communion with each other, meals, food, good conversation. And so in this context, the groom's family has tried to set everything up the way that they want it. Now, anyone here that has been married or has been at a wedding and with the wedding families know that weddings are like, behind the scenes, the most anxious of times. The bride is going crazy, right? With all, trying, feeling responsible for all of the details, handling every little detail. And there is always at every story of every wedding something that goes wrong that wasn't planned. Something gets overlooked. I know at my wedding, what was overlooked is the morning of, Megan was in nursing school, we were both working really hard on getting everything together, and the morning of, I go, we have no wedding programs. So I'm on the computer, like, typing out the wedding program, right? Just like, how did I miss this? 
course, we had a number of other problems at our wedding. Our exit music didn't play. I went to go change to get ready to the procession to leave the reception, to go to our exit vehicle or whatever they call it, your getaway car for your honeymoon. And my clothes aren't in the restroom, so I'm yelling in the restroom to try and get a change of clothes from somebody while Megan's standing out waiting and everybody's holding their bubbles, right? There's always a problem, but these are little problems. These are, these are not showstopper problems. But in the context of this wedding, the wine has run out, and it's as if the music has gone, and there's just the white hum of static, and everybody's clinking their plates, sort of waiting expectantly. Where's the party? Right? The wine has run out. Some of us understand that. We've been to weddings, and we know that that's how weddings work. There's drink. There's food. Even, even those among us who weren't raised around alcohol like me, there was still a feast. Imagine if the food, the caterers come out and they go, we're short, we only have enough for half the guests. Imagine the awkwardness of the wedding host. Imagine the shame and embarrassment. How do they tell people that the feast that everybody was excited for is not going to happen? And so Mary, being a mother, going to probably a family friend's wedding, feels in some way, as many women do, sort of with that feminine intuition, sort of by association, she feels the pain, right? She goes, I've got to help them. And so she goes to Jesus first. She goes, they have no wine. And so there we have the problem. That this may seem like a petty problem, but actually, it's a universal problem. And we only have to think about this a little more poetically to realize that in all of our lives, the wine runs out. There are times in which no matter the best laid plans we could possibly have, we get everything set up just the way we want it, and somewhere out of nowhere, Murphy's Law, what can go wrong will go wrong, and something spins out of control, and all of the things we had worked so hard on are completely overlooked. All people see are the, like, the mistake in neon lights, and we're just going, what gives? Right? That's from the host's perspective. We've been the host, and we've had the wine run dry, but we've also been the guest, and we've had the wine run dry. We're supposed to get something. Right? We're waiting for the feast, for the reward, for what we've earned, for all of our hard work. We've done all of the right things. We are a young Christian. We're not going to have sex with anyone. We're going to be completely chaste, right? And we're going to be ready for that guy. And then our life goes wrong. Or we're going to follow all of the rules and pray every way to Sunday. And our church is going to stay the same. Our relationships there aren't going to grow. Or people are going to leave and friends are going to leave. Or we're going to, we're going to offer our life before God. And a family member is going to die. And we say, God, what gives? I don't get it. I'm doing all of the things. Your kid has a disability. Anything. All of these things happen and life gives you a left turn that's totally out of your control. And you are sit staring out into just the stark reality that life is a place where the wine runs out. The author of Ecclesiastes knew this. Ecclesiastes is a pretty depressing book. Um, but it's also a really powerful book. Especially maybe with age. Right? As you begin to get older and you realize this is written from a, a man, a wise king, who realizes everything under the sun is emptiness. That if you live for this world, eventually you will die. In Ecclesiastes 2, the author writes, verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Right? I lived for the moment. I seized everything I could get. Any term answer, any comfort, any feast, anything I could get my hands on, I was able to get it. I had it all. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. 
And I think we can all resonate with that feeling that there are moments in which God doesn't give us the thing that we want that we thought the Bible spelled out we were going to get for all of this hard work. Our life doesn't look the way we thought it was going to look. And I think we can trace this all the way back to the garden. Because wine in this text does not just symbolize drunkenness, debauchery. No, the wine in this text symbolizes a sweetness, a joy, a fountain of goodness, of peace, of shalom, of the way things were meant to be in the garden. In the garden of Eden, when everything was right, when animals and men lived together, when God had created everything in his order and it was all symbiotic and universal and working together as it was intended to work. And then sin's effect creeps in. The wine runs out. How does it happen? Well, Adam and Eve begin to live for what the king in Ecclesiastes realized he had been living for. The wine itself that had landed on the tables, that had been served, the sweetness, the goodness, he was living for that. But he had forgotten the source. And so Adam and Eve, of course, when they forget the source, that is where sin creeps in, where they appreciate the gift without the giver. I've used that phrase many times. And then, of course, what happens? They had been walking with God in the goodness and the cool of the day. And he calls out to them, where are you? And they are naked and ashamed. Because in their effort to have it all, to, to be the ones who determine how it should be, they've encountered their own limits, just as this king in Ecclesiastes encountered. The limits of life, everything will eventually end. I can't quite get my hands on anything. I'm always anxious. I'm always worried. And what immediately comes after that, when their own wine runs dry, when they realize that we have made a mistake, that in living for and being able to have it all ourselves and run our own shows, that we have made a mistake, that the wine has run out as a result of our own oversight, our own sin, our own going astray. We have wanted to be like God. And we have decided we no longer want to follow God. And they feel ashamed and they cover up their nakedness. The hosts of this wedding are in a shame moment where they're saying, we need to cover this up, this limit. We have to be able to see that we make mistakes. We've made such a big mistake. And I think we can all relate to that feeling. And so Mary goes to Jesus in this unveiling of sin, right? If the, if the feast is the garden and everybody's having a great time and there's laughter and there's fun and then the wine is running out, it's gone, we see sin. We see nakedness. We see all of this brokenness. And she comes where? To Jesus. And Jesus is there. He's not out with John the Baptist eating locusts in a, in a like you know, sackcloth and ashes or a robe or out as an ascetic or a hermit or up in a monastery. He is at the wedding with Mary. He's there. He's near to her. And I think in 2020, it's important for us right now and for those we speak to, to be able to articulate Jesus is still near. Jesus is at the wedding with you he comes from a place of goodness and peace, but he's with you in the brokenness as things are going sideways, not the way they're intended to be. In 2020, Jesus is here. It's powerful. We said last week Jesus moves into the neighborhood. This is Jesus in the neighborhood, hanging out with everybody in their lives with their problems. And so Mary goes to him and she says, they have no wine. And, and in this interchange, Jesus says to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not come, right? There's this weird exchange that happens. This is where your memory of the story may not fit the reality of the story. My memory of the story so often is, and, G and, and Mary came to Jesus and poof, he made wine and it was so good and isn't Jesus great? 
And I forget this whole conversation, which is where the real meat is. But first we have to start and say, when Mary went to Jesus, she wasn't coercing him. I think it can be easy to see Mary as sort of an overbearing Jewish mother who is saying, Jesus, there is no wine, right? I know, I know what you know how to do, Jesus. Come on. Like, you can even see her around, like, the wedding host being like, Jesus, there is no wine, you know? Yeah. But that's not how it's happening. We have to be careful when we read into this text how much we bring our own stuff into it, maybe to dramatize the story or maybe to play things out of context. If you understand Mary, if you read about Mary, that doesn't fit Mary. There's nothing to back that up. Mary, the mother of Jesus, held him in the womb, knowing that he was divine. Mary knows there's something special about Jesus. And Mary has dealt with Jesus doing this kind of thing before, actually. Jesus has always been a different kind of kid because his father is the father in heaven. And so Mary, Mary goes to Jesus with this problem. And we can tell right here that first of all, Mary clearly recognizes that Jesus is God. She clearly believes. Because she could go and pray to Yahweh. She could, she could pray like the Psalms say, God is near, and she could pray out to God. But God's right there. So she goes to God in the flesh. Right there, she has access to him, as we learned in the previous chapter, that he's the stairway, that there's access now to the open heaven, and he's standing there. So right in there, we see a little bit of the reason why we pray through Jesus to the Father. And here we can also see that while you might say, well, Mary, I mean, it's a big problem, but it's not a big problem, you know? Like, I get that you're feeling all the feelings for this family, but there are way worse problems. Jesus has a very limited amount of time. Like, what's he even doing at this wedding? Why is he now just healing people by the hundreds and thousands? Some of us, we so want Jesus to, to fit into our paradigm of the guy that comes to make everything right for everyone at all times. And everything right for us is nobody hurting, nobody in pain, nobody dying. And where is Jesus? He's at a wedding. Probably talking with his disciples and other people and having a pretty good time. And there are people, I guarantee you, dying in Israel at that very moment. And Jesus is not with them. So the, the answer to absolute, the joy that Jesus is intending to bring can't be that in that moment he's supposed to bring total shalom. And right now, it can't be that in that moment he's trying to bring total peace. And he's wrong for not bringing peace in 2020. How dare you, Jesus, you haven't brought us peace. So we have to be a little careful how we read into stories. Do we make Mary an overbearing mother? Do we make Jesus already in the wrong even for being at the wedding? So she's not pressuring. She's also not vindictive. Mary could have said this. Jesus, why didn't you see this coming? You're God. They're in so much shame and embarrassment. Where have you been? What have you been doing? That would be a total... I, would, I could see myself doing that. I could see myself getting so upset that there's a problem. And God in the flesh has not solved it before it happened. Come on. She's not vindictive. Many of us are vindictive in our prayer. Many of us come into prayer with a vindictive heart. After how good I've been, why don't you give me the joy I want? The Eden I earned, you told me you would give it to me, and I did it, and this isn't enough. No, Mary simply says, there is no wine. Later, Paul will write in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious, but bring everything in prayer and petition to the Lord. Mary says, my worry is not too small for Jesus. Makes me think of, uh, there's sort of family lore in my extended family. And one of them is, a, is a, a family called the Olivers that Megan grew up to next door. Now the Olivers were a really special family in a lot of ways. 
But one of the things that they did is they were very overt with their faith. Anytime a friend would be over, it wouldn't make any difference. If somebody had lost their wallet or lost their keys, they would, of course, do a, a search. They would, of course, look in the obvious places. But one of the very first things they would do is they would just gather as a family and pray for the wallet to be found, pray for the keys to be found. Now, as I've grown up, I've sort of scoffed at that kind of prayer, actually. Somehow it seems like we should be praying for bigger things, right? Come on, just find the wallet. You don't need to get God involved. This isn't a God thing. This is just you forgetting where your wallet is. Come on. And I was struck reading this, how Mary could have run out to wine merchants in the streets. She could have gone and just tried to secure a whole case or jars or however they brought it of all of this wine. And maybe she did some of the obvious things and looked around, but then she said, I've got Jesus here. Jesus, they have no wine. She brings him into it immediately. And then we look at Jesus' response. It's not, it's not what we expect, is it? When we go to Jesus in prayer, how many times do we have responses that we don't expect? Jesus says to her, first of all, he says, woman. Woman. I mean, that also kind of fits with 2020, doesn't it? We feel like God has literally come, so the women in this room could relate to this, and just said, woman. Like, this is how it's going to be. And we're like, this is awful. You're awful, right? That's, we want to believe that about the way Jesus says woman. But we also have to read that into context. We have to read that and understand how does he use this text? How does this used in other places? And we know in John 19, later in this story, he actually uses it the very same way, but where is he? He's on the cross talking to his mother as he's dying. And he says, woman, and he points to John, the beloved disciple, and she says, here is your son. So just the fact that he's using this word woman, we can't read into that with all of our modern vernacular and say, Jesus, the chauvinist, Jesus has no feelings. He's so harsh, just like God is so harsh to me. No, he's using the same term. It is, I think, a way for Jesus to distance himself in some way from the familial and say, while I am your family, I am also God. While I am near to you, I am also the divine. And I think there is a sense in which God will sometimes create a sense of a reminder for us. When we have not just said, we've taken almost for granted his nearness, and we've begun to twist his arm. We've begun to creep into this space of wanting to control him. I think there can be times in which the reminder is gently put there. I have the authority. And I am going to lovingly tell you something right now. And he says, what does this have to do with me? Which was a, a common way in that time. It was a boundary setter. It says, is this my problem? This, this is, I get that this is the host problem. I get that it's a problem. Is this my problem? And then he says this. He says, my hour has not yet come. So I think it, it's tempting to say, well, it just seems as though Jesus is against us, against Mary. He just doesn't want to help. And you know what? I feel sometimes like God doesn't want to help me. So this feeds me right now to read into it that way. We have to be careful about that. It's not, it's not that God is against us so much as there is a tension with us inasmuch as we rebel against the Father. Now, let me explain that. Jesus is not going to do everything we want if we're going astray. He's not going to enable us in our sin. He is not going to send us down a path that will lead to our destruction. As soon as he can, he's going to take his hook and he's going to pull us back onto the path. And so I think there is an aspect here of which Jesus, early in his ministry is saying this, I hear you, but I need to remind you always that I serve the Father. Mary would have been familiar with this because in Luke 2, we have a story. Jesus is a young kid. And 
the, uh, his parents and his family have gone to the temple and they can't find Jesus. Remember this story? He's lost. He's lost among all the festivities. I think it happens at the Passover. It's sort of this home alone moment, right? Where's Kevin? Right? Where's Jesus? We can't find him. And it says Mary was worried sick. Mary's, Mary is such a great mom, right? She's, she's, she's like worried sick about Kevin and she just doesn't know what to do. Jesus shows up and he says, didn't you know I had to be at my father's house? I think he's like 12 at the time. Didn't you know I had to be my father's house? So Mary understands that Jesus is a little different. And that you can go to him, but you go to him not just as your son, but you must go to him as the divine. That we must go to Jesus not just looking for idiosyncrasies of the manness, the humanness of Jesus. We could say, well, Jesus is just early in his ministry and he just hasn't learned the diplomacy of how to talk well yet. He hasn't learned how to navigate these situations. No, absolutely not. Jesus inherently is showing the character of God, the eternal and permanent God, who will always act in congruity, like in sameness with himself. Jesus doesn't just change his mind willy-nilly like we do. He is here unstoppable in his imminency, in his greatness. And he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So if we take that phrase in the full sense, we can see this. And we know this with prayer. Sometimes Jesus says no. Sometimes Jesus says yes. Sometimes Jesus says wait. So here Jesus is saying, look, thank you. Thank you. on my timeline. I love you. We've got a timeline for this. Now, it may even, the way I can convey this can't really do justice to it. You may even say, John, this sounds dismissive, the way you even said it. But I think there's some aspect in which there's a comfort to knowing that Jesus both asks us to bring these to him, and yet he already knows them. N.T. Wright writes that Jesus is at once haunting, disturbing, and intensely attractive. It's an interesting way to describe Jesus. I think of, I think of love stories, right? Where there's an aspect of the object of desire, which they're incredibly attractive. To the point that their refusal doesn't turn you away, but begs for your improvement. You just want to be better because that, that guy or that girl... That person, you so want to know them. That if they refuse you, you you say, what do I need to change so that I can have them? And so there are times in which Jesus is saying, wait to us for our benefit. So, where does this go? What would you expect Mary to say after this? It seems like Mary might be kind of shut down. Seems like she might just turn away and go, okay, I I don't know what to do next. I think that's what all I could do. But what does Mary do? Says his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you to do. No matter how opaque Jesus seems and no matter how difficult the response to our prayer, the answer for us is the same. The answer for us to each other, to ourselves. John is writing to us. He's writing this story to the Christian church. And in this story, he's saying discipleship is to continue on and do whatever Jesus tells you to do. He is God. It will be for your benefit. So I know this is a difficult hot take for this year, for 2020. Stick to your rudder. Keep on the same course. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. But that's what Mary is saying here. 
when Jesus says, not yet. He hasn't fixed anything so far. Mary has done the right thing. She's had a great heart. She's so loving. She cares so much for her family, friends. She's intercessory. This is intercessory prayer. On behalf of somebody else, this isn't even her pain. And Jesus is still saying, thank you. Not yet. I think that's a really difficult thing for the stomach right now. The more pain, the higher the volume on that pain, the more immediate to us, the more ridiculous it seems that Jesus would seem so distant. But what is he talking about when he says, my hour? What does that mean? What does my hour mean in this phrase? When Jesus talks about my hour, he is talking about his death on the cross and his resurrection. He is talking about the purpose for which he came to the earth, the ultimate expression of peace that he will bring. And he is pointing Mary to something so much greater, to bring her peace and hope. Because Jesus can bring wine to every wedding, and the wine will still eventually run out, just like Ecclesiastes, and those wedding hosts will still come up at the end with the brokenness of the world, unless Jesus does something so much greater than that. And so Jesus takes the moment to say, your problem is valid. I have a solution that will blow your mind. It's so much better and so much bigger. Trust my timing. So Jesus is confronting Mary and our own expectations. Just to underscore this. My, uh, one of the pastors that mentors me, John Johnson, wrote a book on John that I've really enjoyed. He has an example talking about our expectations with prayer, which is what we're talking about. What we come in thinking Jesus should do with the problem, right? What we come in thinking Jesus ought to do before we've even prayed out to him. See, we're coming to Jesus already with the answer that he should fill. And he, said, he writes this. He says, sometimes our expectations are our expectations. Expectations that must meet our anticipated outcomes. Then he pulls from a story in Walter Isaacson's biography on the Apple co-founder Steve Jobs. And he writes, Steve Jobs went to church in his early years. But it all changed one day when he was 13, staring in a picture of starving children in a country in Africa called Biafra that's no longer existent um, in West Africa. And he confronted his pastor. Hearing that God is all-knowing, he asked, well, does God know about this and what's going to happen to these children? When his pastor failed to give an answer that met his expectations, Jobs announced that he did not want anything to do with God anymore. I think so many of us professing Christians are actually not far from that space in the way that we approach prayer. We will read the Bible in so much as it reinforces what we already believe about Jesus. But in so much as it confronts us, in so much as our prayer life frustrates us and deteriorates our sense of what ought to be in the world, we actually grow in our distance to God. We would not be like Mary who says to his servants, do whatever he tells you. We would not have that kind of faith and trust. Missiologist Leslie Newbigin puts it this way. She says, Jesus cannot become the instrument of any human purpose. So what's happening when Jesus responds this way is simply a sense of reminder of the situation, of the scenario, of who we are and who God is. But it's not simply a reminder saying, stay in your lane. You need to be there. That's just how the world works. Jesus is pointing towards something, as we said, so much bigger. So, what happens? Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out 
and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. This is the directions Jesus gives to the servants. Phil, draw it out, take it. If they did the things that Jesus asked them to do, there is absolutely no reason whatsoever for them to have any belief that they would be doing anything but taking a ladle of water to the wedding host. And yet the commands that Jesus gives are ordinary, they're straightforward, they seem very servile, very servant-oriented, they seem sort of beneath in a way. They're very unspecial, let's put it that way. There's nothing miraculous about them. Nobody would proclaim your greatness for doing them. They are simply ordinary, rhythmic things. But of course, what happens when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine? By Jesus' very word, the magic happens. By Jesus' very word, the miracle happens. It is not from the work and the effort. They did not wave a dead chicken over the jar and spout incantations and cut themselves and like just go crazy to make it happen just the right way and poof, it turned into wine. Think about how many myths and stories, even in the Bible, how many of the pagan cultures just worked so hard to do it just right so God would be pleased with them. And think of how similar we actually are to them in the way that we live our Christian faith. That we believe that Jesus will do the miracles and the magic, but we try to do everything in our power to get them done. To the point where we become anxious messes, where we're way thin, way overspread. There's no way we're bringing peace in our scenarios because we're wrecked with bringing in just a little more money. With just this other thing in our house so it'll finally look the way it looked in the magazine. To have just the right friends, to have just the right vacations and outings, to have be just the right grandparents, to do anything that we feel like will be the thing that makes the miracle happen. The way life we always imagined it would be. In Steve Jobs' case, living your life to try and bring about the answer to that problem of hurt in the world, perhaps. You will sacrifice everything on the altar to make it happen. But that's not exactly what Jesus is asking, is it? He's saying you must do things that have a different kind of hardness, a different kind of cost. Follow me and I will tell you to do ordinary things and I will make them utterly extraordinary. Because I am here. I am with you. So I just want to underscore right now and remind myself that this tells us often churches, often pastors will call you to prescribe programs to extraordinary efforts in time instead of, tr instead of trying to build in you trusting and open hearts and minds that desire Jesus to the point where when you're asked to fill it, you'll just fill it to the brim because you're overjoyed at what's going to happen. Because you have the commands. We have what we need to do. It's so clear. The question is whether we want to do it or not. Not whether we know what the things are. We know the basic elements. We have people around us that we can challenge and ask, am I doing this right? Am I being faithful? And then there is a point at which Jesus in our prayer may simply say, wait. Except he's not pointing to an hour yet to come. He will be pointing first to an hour that already has come. Because we are looking at this in hindsight. And he will be simultaneously pointing to an hour that is yet to come. To the new heavens. To the new earth. But he will bring such abundance in his miracles. He has brought such abundance in his hour. And he will bring such abundance again. And even now when we request him and fulfill the ordinary things, water will be turned to wine in this lifetime. In your life, there will be times at which water is turned to wine by Jesus. And it will be in such incredible volume. If you do the math, there's 160 gallons of wine even for a long wedding party, I did the calculation, that's 3,750 glasses of wine. That's so much. That's a ridiculous amount 
of wine. It reminds me of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has this enormous crowd, and he feeds them all, and there's still more left over. This is an image. This is the first sign because it points to an image that John describes in the prologue, which is of Jesus' grace and truth. This is grace. There is nothing about the wedding hosts and planning this. They deserve everything they got, so to speak, for the mistakes they made. It is only by grace that Jesus comes in through the intercessor of Mary and brings this abundance And it starts with her asking, her trusting, and her continuing to do the steadfast things. But it's not over. There's more to the story. The master of the feast tasted the wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water and they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. None of these people, the, the head waiter, the groom, no clue Jesus had done this. No clue Jesus is in the back room with the servants and had performed a miracle. To them, there was a sense in which good wine had been stored. And it was so much better that even a totally, let's say, secular person, a person outside the realm of Christianity, did not know Jesus, did not know his deity, can taste the sweetness that Jesus brings and can say, this is unlike anything else in the world. This is counterintuitive. This doesn't make sense. Let me explain. Everything else in the world, every other sweet wine you have, is sweet at the beginning and fades in its sweetness over time. Everything. Food, drink, sex, love. Like, there are so many things. There are so many things that we treat that way. We say, man, this feels so good at the beginning. Money. These things feel so good. These cheap wines that we imbibe through our idolatry feel so good and then they're gone. And then they run out. It is only with Jesus that you have the better wine, this counterintuitive joy. I accidentally said love there in the beginning. The love, that's the thing. The love, that grows. The joy grows. As we do what Mary is doing, those things bubble up and they get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And the world has nothing to compare to it anywhere. There is nothing out there outside of Jesus that will be like this. The groom is totally, the the head waiter is totally surprised. Nobody does this. That's grace. That's the first sign that Jesus brings. He says, I'm going to show you something you, don't, you haven't seen before me. And that's this abundance when you don't deserve it, when you haven't done the right things to earn it. Early church father Augustine underscores this, and he says, he says and this is, this is crazy, he goes, God actually has been turning water into wine every season of every year. The rain has fallen, the grapes have grown, and they have turned into wine, all because of God. We've simply ignored it out of its regularity. We've taken it for granted. Jesus here is making it new and fresh and immediate so we can see the glory of God that has always been there. What happens in verse 11? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So Jesus is doing a miracle that reminds us, actually, this is not new per se. This reflects the character of God, but Jesus brings it in a new way. That always to God be the glory. And always in his abundance we are indebted to him. So I think for us, we might relate this a little bit to the most immediate experience we've just had in Portland, which is we were covered in smoke. We were just totally covered in smoke. And now we have fresh, clean air. It feels, I saw blue skies, it felt like abundance that I did not deserve. It felt so good. But already this morning, 
I walked in and I didn't think as much about it. Already it was just kind of the way things had always been. How quickly I forget God's grace and goodness. But in the story we see that it does something that changes people. But it's possible to miss it. It's actually possible. If you don't go searching for the source of it, you will miss the clean air. You will miss the good wine. You will miss the unexpected graces. You will simply take them as circumstantial events, random things in a meaningless world, enjoy them for what they are in the moment, and move on. And you will miss the source of all of it. That's what the head waiter does. That's what the groom does, but not the disciples. Because the disciples are seeking after him. Disciples are seeking and desiring to what John calls believe into him. And I'll just sum up with this. That there is something very practical about this for our life. That there is something very um, tangible that we can take away for our prayer. John Onwacheka, in his small book on prayer that he has for churches, emphasizes corporate prayer. And he sums up just a a very simple statement about this idea of expectation versus expectancy. This idea that, that Jesus is not for our expectations. We do not create what he ought to do, but we rely on him in expectation of him. And he talks about this of the early disciples, and I thought this was so interesting to leave us with. In the 40 days following Jesus' resurrection and ascension, his hour, the disciples began to pray differently, he writes. They stopped praying for self-preservation and more for gospel faithfulness and boldness. God rewarded the prayers of the novices, right, in, this, in our story, who were drawing, filling, and taking, which for us encourages consistent prayer in the lives of his people. So I, wanna, I just want to emphasize this. Most A lot, I'll just say this for myself, a lot of time is spent on these thoughts of self-preservation. As Christians, we ought not be consumed with that. That is an afterthought. The, The disciples in this moment, after witnessing the glorious and abundance grace that Jesus brought firsthand, they utterly changed the way they do their life. It was no longer about them. It was about faithfulness and boldness in their prayer. It was about prayer to move the world for Jesus. It was about prayer to go out, not thinking about what will happen and watching my back, but but believing this, that Jesus will turn water into wine. He will bring joy out of anything he asks me to do. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for this passage. I pray that you would enliven us as we consider praying, perhaps some of us for the first time seriously considering what prayer is about. I pray that you would convict us of a type of prayer that is different, a type of prayer that is bold, a type of prayer that is not self-focused alone but that is global in scope, that is concerned outside of our small village, outside of even our church, but is concerned with your people, with the people you have created, that is concerned with bringing Eden, that is asking an expectancy, that is filling things up to the brim so that we can wait for you to turn it to wine, but that we are doing what we can in our power and our time, and then we are as soon as we can going to you. We thank you that you've given us these, these records, these testimonies. In Jesus' name, amen.